1: The History of Fashion, a podcast where we explore the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy
0: Zachary. Dress listeners. Well, American dress listeners, I should say, I wager to bet that many of you have learned the same version of U.S. history that I did in grade school, that April did in grade school, um, that people have been learning for a very long time. And it usually begins with the familiar song, in 1492, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Well, Christopher Columbus is, of course, the famed Italian explorer credited with quote unquote discovering America. I, of course, use discovering ironically, as we should all know by now that he did not discover anything. <laughs> Millions of indigenous (laughs) people had inhabited the lands now known as the quote-unquote America for thousands upon thousands of years before Columbus and explorers after him claimed them in the name of the Spanish monarchs Queen Isabella I and King Ferdinand II in the late 15th and early 16th centuries.
1: Yes, and Columbus first made landfall in present-day Bahamas on the island of Guanahani, the indigenous homeland of the Taino people. From there, he traveled to modern-day Cuba and the island of Hispaniola, which today is comprised of the Dominican Republic and Haiti, and then to the eastern coast of Central America and the northern tip of South America. And Columbus's voyages were instrumental in laying the literal foundation for Spain's subsequent centuries-long colonization and occupation of South, Central, and North America. The colonizers brought many things with them, including Spanish culture, religion, and dress, but also devastatingly disease and the effects of colonization that still resonate in all of these countries to this very day. You know, we're seeing a lot of this evidence presently by the continued protest against the Columbus monuments present in these countries, and also the very celebration of Columbus Day.
0: And as our listeners know, I am, of course, interested in the relationship between fashion and colonialism, and I am studying it in relationship to the history of my home state, New Mexico, with grapples with a very long Spanish and then Anglo-American colonial past that extends back 500 years, so not a a short period by any means. And the clothed body is this incredibly potent site for the studies of the ways in which identities were negotiated within the colonial context, and especially as they relate to the intersections of gender, race, and class. The Spanish colonial world itself is a subject right for interrogation on these topics, which is why we are so pleased to welcome today's guest to the show— And that is fashion historian, Laura Beltran Rubio, whose research explores the construction of identity through fashion in Europe and Latin America with an emphasis on the early modern Spanish world.
1: Laura is a doctoral candidate at the College of William & Mary in Williamsburg, Virginia. And her dissertation explores the adoption and adaptation of European fashions, their fusion with local indigenous elements of dress, and their representation in portraits and pictures, which were produced in the Viceroy of New Granada, which was the representative of Spain's South American empire. And she joins us today for part one of our two-part episode, during which we discuss her research on Spain's Imperio de la Moda, or empire of fashion. Laura, a warm welcome to Dressed. Laura, welcome to Dressed. It's such a pleasure to have you here
0: with us today.
2: Hi, Cassidy. Thank you. It's a pleasure for me to be here. I have been listening to and learning from Dressed for a very long time, so it's really an honor being here.
0: Yeah, and I've been following your work and research for some time too, so I'm excited to connect and learn more about what you are researching. And your work focuses on fashion and self-fashioning in the 18th century Spanish-American colonial territory of New Granada, which is modern-day Colombia, Ecuador, Panama, and Venezuela. But before we dive into this rich topic... I'd love if you could first kind of set the scene for our listeners. When did the Spanish first come to the continent, now known as South America? It was certainly not known as South America prior to the Spanish. And who and what did they find there that made them want to stay?
2: Um, So the Spanish invasion of South America was actually one of the very first colonial enterprises in what we now know as the Americas. And the Spaniards actually were some of the first Europeans to come here um, in this history of colonialism. The Spaniards arrived in what is now Venezuela, Panama, and Colombia at the turn of the 16th century, so very early on. And they founded and named their first cities during their first explorations, but many of them were later abandoned. They came in, founded a city, then found a better place for their cities, and so they left. And it wasn't until 1515 that Cumaná, the first sort of permanent city, was founded in the territory of present-day Venezuela. This was the first city that was found in what they first called Tierra Firme, which is, in a super, super simplified version of the story, what later became the Viceroyalty of New granada and they also founded another city in present-day Colombia that was very important called Santa Maria Antigua del Darien. That one was founded in 1513, but that one was later abandoned. The actual viceroyalty of the Neo-Granada, which is the territory or the colony that I study, wasn't created until the 18th century. And its history is super complicated and probably takes more than just a few minutes to talk about it or explain <laughs> it clearly. But it was created as a result of what are called the Bourbon reforms, which came about with the new monarchy in Spain. The Habsburgs used to rule the Spanish Empire until the end of the 17th century. And at the beginning of the 18th century, the Bourbons, the same French Bourbons, came to claim, I guess, the Spanish crown. And so these reforms, they were a sort of reaction of an empire that was basically disintegrating and they were trying to reclaim the empire and reorganize the empire. So these reforms included some that were more social, some that were more political and some even economic or with economic intentions. And so the Viceroyalty of New Granada was a product of all of this. It was officially founded in 1717. And it was later dissolved because they decided that it was too expensive and too complicated. And in the 1730s, it was founded again. And this time it was kind of permanent and the Viceroyalty of New Granada existed until it became independent from the Spanish Empire in the 19th century.
0: Yeah. And the Spanish Empire was quite vast. I mean, they founded These colonies that you're talking about um, around the same time, they were also up. Cortez was in Mexico, um, moving up north into what is present day, New Mexico, Texas, kind of all those southern United States territories. So it was an incredibly vast empire. And I'm just curious how similar the south american colonies were to other spanish colonial enterprises for instance in like mexico cortez came they subjugated the indigenous populations they enslaved them as laborers and then they just started really looking for the nation's resources i'm just curious if you can talk a little bit more about what resources they found in south america that made them want to stay
2: yeah they i think colonial enterprises are at the basis just pretty much the same always. Right. (laughs) (laughs) So I have an undergraduate degree in economic history, actually, and I do think about colonization in economic terms. I just, I can't avoid it. So in summary, I think about the invasion and colonization of the Americas as this way that the Europeans found to sort of shift their entire productivity output because they found all of these resources that they no longer had in Europe. And these include, of course, some sort of basic natural resources, including water and wood for their ships, for example, but it includes also precious goods and luxury goods, things like gold and gems, and of course, human labor and I think knowledge. Indigenous knowledges are very important for science now, and we don't really realize that again, because they were sort of erased of the history in South America, specifically, there were a lot of natural pigments and plants that have were used for medicines, for example, and through the development of medicines, they found foods such as corn um, or potatoes, and they found silver and I think silver was a very, very big part of the narratives of colonization or or why colonization was important there was gold as well lots of gold and there was this quest for this super rich gold mine that they thought that they would find um, called the legend of el dorado which they thought that was actually in the territories of the muisca which were in what later became the viceroyalty of new granada and in the central area of present-day Colombia and this legend of El Dorado sort of shift because as they were going through different places and realizing that they couldn't find it they said that it was somewhere else (laughs) Um, but this quest for gold and wealth I think in general was what kind of fueled this colonial enterprise I think.
0: Yeah, it's super interesting because in my own research, as you know, I'm studying, you know, Spanish colonialism in North America. And of course, they were also looking for the seven cities of Cibola, which was the storied city that was supposedly all gold, right? It was a city built out of gold. So it's really interesting how those kind of myths and legends play into like justifying these colonial enterprises. curious, do you know anything of the dress practices of the Indigenous people the Spanish encountered? I know there's been books written about this, but if you have any insight into it, I'm sure we'd love to learn a little bit more. I do. I
2: must say, though, that I'm definitely still learning. And I think there's still a lot of work to be done on this matter. And one of the biggest problems that we have is that we tend to speak about Indigenous culture as this sort of big homogenous mass and they are not. There are a lot of different cultures and we should recognize them individually and their own dress expressions individually as well in the different cultures, different people. So we should try to move away from this sort of like homogenic approach. But at the same time, I think this larger approach of grouping cultures has produced some really interesting research, I think, and that's that's where my knowledge comes from because I, of course, do, I am very interested in indigenous fashion, but this is not what my research focuses on, so, of course, I have to learn from others. <laughs> um, in Latin America, we know about the dress precisely of some of these largest indigenous cultures like the Aztecs, the Maya. In South America, specifically, we know about the Inca, And the Inca were particularly important in South America because they formed the largest quote-unquote empire of the region, which they called the Tahuantinsuyu, and it spread from what is present-day Colombia all the way down to Chile, so basically the entire continent, um, especially on or around the mountain ranges of the Andes. And because they were such a large empire and they sort of conquered other Andean peoples, they also incorporated a lot of cultural elements from other cultures as well and so we can speak about some shared elements of Andean cultures that we can see in the Inca or in the dress of the Inca and so these include super highly technological weaving techniques that resulted in very fine textiles with very dense counts of fibers with very sort of like invisible finishings, if we could speak about that. And textiles were also very, very important, among other things, because they started to be made before ceramics, which is quite rare. And so scholars of the ancient Andes have talked about this textile primacy that existed there because textiles were basically the primary means of culture and they were super important. And of course, these textiles were used for a number of different arts, but they were also used for dress. And so in dress, we see a very strict hierarchical structure in which people were supposed to basically dress for their rank. And so only the nobles, so to speak, had access to the finest textiles, which were often made of the wool from alpacas or camlites, um in general, such as llamas and picunas. They were sometimes combined with cotton too. And cotton is interesting because we tend to think that cotton wasn't present or like produced in the Americas until the 19th century, but this is definitely a North America-centric story because cotton was indigenous to the Andes. And so cultures, pre-Hispanic cultures like the Inca, were already planting and cropping cotton and using it for their textile production. And then their garments were not tailored like Spanish or European garments. They were made using lengths of fabric that could be wrapped, sometimes sewn together to form these garments, but they were not tailored. They were not cut to form garments. Men in general were a sort of tunic that was um, in Quechua, the official language of the Inca. It was called uncu. Women wore another sort of tunic-like garment wrapped around their bodies and held together with belts that they called chumbi and pins, and they wore a sort of mantle around their upper bodies called Lichla. And so even though men and women had these sort of generic garments, they again would dress differently according to their rank. And so the motifs in the textiles, for example, varied, the pigments with which textiles were dyed also varied. Um, so for example, for red textiles, archaeologists have found that the elites seem to have used cochineal dye, which was imported from Mesoamerica, while the more, I don't want to say lower ranks, but the more sort of common people used Anatto and other dyes that were found more commonly locally. And so, to move away from the Inca just very briefly, um, in present-day Colombia, the largest cultures were the Chibcha cultures, which include the Muisca and the Guane, that are the ones that we know the most about. And their garments have very similarities with the Inca. So again, they used the lengths of fabric to create the garments instead of tailoring them. Um, They also wore, in general, sort of tunics and mantles garments wrapped around their bodies in layers as well, because the temperature can vary a lot in the Andes. It can be really warm when it gets sunny. And then when the sun goes down, especially in the early morning, um, later in the evening, it gets really cold. So there are a lot of layers. And they also used a lot of cotton, again, because cotton was native to South America.
0: Wow, that is incredibly fascinating. And I'm Happy that you brought up tailoring versus not tailoring because when you talk about tailoring, you're talking about cutting into the fabric. And the fact that these cultures valued their fabric so very much that they wouldn't cut into it, but they would actually use it in its fullest expression really speaks to that central role, like you said, that textiles played in these different cultures. And it's also just super fascinating to study these diverse dress practices to learn about them. I mean, obviously, that could be an entire podcast in itself. And then once the Spanish come studying, this cultural collision through the dressed body. So bringing us back to the Spanish, fashionable dress was an incredibly important and an integral component of Spanish identity and status. And they worked really hard to transfer that dress culture to the American colonies. It's super interesting. The scholar Lyman Johnson has actually written about how within 30 years of the Spanish conquest of Mexico in the 16th century, they had already set up this sophisticated guild system of artisans, including silk weavers and shoemakers. And I'm curious, was there a similar process in New Granada?
2: Yes, yes, of course. The the process was very similar in all of the different Spanish colonies, I think in part because the Spaniards were trying to sort of bring their own culture to the new colonies that they were finding. And so the pre-Hispanic cultures in the Andes, they also had very rigid hierarchical structures that were based on dress. So this was something that they shared with the Spaniards. And then they also had textile manufacturing technologies that the Spaniards sort of put into use as they established their colonies and their cities. And so that's where the guilds come in and they start creating all of these guilds. And, and in the city of Quito, for example, which was founded in the 16th century, the Taylors Guild was one of the first guilds to be created there. So this was super important. And As you mentioned, guilds were specialized. And so we have the tailor's guild, but then we also have guilds of weavers, of embroiderers, of shoemakers, and they all work together to create fashion. And this is a whole system of production and trade, also a system where artisans get trained and tailors and weavers, they all get trained. And in the case of South American, I'm pretty sure this extends to the entire Spanish-American colonies, many of the people that formed these guilds were indigenous artisans or they had indigenous heritage. And we also see that. So that's th- this sort of like racialized components is definitely an important part of the guild system and the networks that are built through guilds.
0: And I'm curious, you mentioned that they incorporated some of the indigenous technologies. Do you know what those are specifically? i don't know the technologies specifically but i in the inca empire
2: for example they had this structure of workshops where women especially and i think it's questionable if it's just women or if this is sort of the the tale that we were told by the colonizers but women were trained to become specialized weavers that made the finest textiles for the Inca emperor and i think the history says that these women were the prettiest women and the most valuable and that they were also virgins which inevitably makes me think of women in a convent also engaging with needlework and so this kind of structure was sort of i don't i don't know how exact it was the adoption by the Spaniards Um, but we see a sort of parallel there and then we also see indigenous textile artists were in general just very good weaving different things and using their materials which included cotton that was highly valued by the Spaniards and so they were put to work in there Um, and then they, even though in the Andes, they used alpaca wool before the Spaniards came in, they could also use sheep's wool, which the Spaniards brought with them. So I think in general, their like labor was put into use um, and probably technologies as well. But I don't know specific technologies that were put into use as well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, that was a great answer. And they're highly valued skills, like you said. More with Laura after a brief sponsor break.
3: Dress listeners, whatever your reason for wanting to learn a new language, whether it's an upcoming international adventure, communicating with your friends and family abroad, or even professional purposes, Rosetta Stone has got you covered. As the trusted
0: expert in language learning for 30 years now, you can join millions of Rosetta Stone users to learn any of the 25 languages offered. That includes Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, and so many more.
3: And this is fast language acquisition, friends. There are no English translations, so you learn to speak listen, and think in your new language. And right now you can get lifetime access to all 25 of Rosetta Stone's language courses for 50% off. That's language learning for 25 languages for the rest of your life, which Cass is frankly amazing.
0: It is. And what are you waiting for, dress listeners? Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, dress listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today.
3: Shout out to Astapro for sponsoring this episode and providing us with free samples. Dress listeners, if you suffer from seasonal allergies like me, Astapro is your new go-to. It has been super helpful to me this spring as it bursts into full bloom. And that's because Astapro is the fastest 24-hour over-the-counter
0: solution for nasal allergy symptoms. Astapro is a first-of-its-kind nasal allergy spray. It starts working in 30 minutes while other allergy sprays take hours.
3: Astapro is the first and only 24-hour steroid-free allergy spray, and Astapro delivers full prescription strength indoor and outdoor allergy relief from nasal congestion, runny and itchy nose, and sneezing. You too can get fast-acting nasal allergy symptom relief like I have with Astapro. It gets me back in the game, ready to record the show for all of you. Go to
0: AstaproAllergy.com for a discount so you can Astapro and go today. That's A-S-T-E-P-R-O-Allergy.com. Astpro and Go. Use as directed for relief of nasal congestion, runny nose, sneezing, and itchy nose due to allergies.
3: Menopause. Perimenopause. These can be some of the most uncomfortable phases of a woman's life. If you find yourself in either of these, well, Hormone Harmony is here for you. Hormone Harmony capsules contain science-backed herbal extracts called adaptogens. Now here's the beauty about adaptogens. They help the body adapt to any stressors, like chaotic hormonal changes that happen naturally throughout a woman's life.
0: Happy Mammoth, the company that created Hormone Harmony, is dedicated to making women's lives easier. And that means using only science-backed ingredients that have been proven to work for women. They make no compromise when it comes to quality,
3: and it really shows. And get this. Hormone Harmony isn't just for menopause. Any woman with symptoms of hormonal imbalances can take it but it is perfect for those horrible menopause symptoms that put a woman's life on hold. And for a limited time, you can get
0: 15% off your entire first order at happymammoth.com. Just use the code DRESSED at checkout. That's happymammoth.com and use the code DRESSED for 15% off today. Welcome back So, Laura, it is really amazing to consider just how the wealthy upper class in New Granada maintained this fashionable appearance, maybe months behind, you know, the quote-unquote latest trends in Europe, but still in tune with those trends uh, or, you know, those dress practices nonetheless. And it's incredibly remarkable when you just consider how they were, you know, getting their garments and textiles and knowledge. It's this trade in luxury goods that spanned the globe. And these ships are traveling from China to the Philippines to New Granada and on to Europe and back again. I mean, it's really incredible. And I'm hoping you can talk about these sophisticated trade networks that brought fashionable luxury goods to this um, South American Spanish colony of New Granada.
2: Well, as you mentioned, the world was incredibly globalized there. And I think, well, you also mentioned early how vast the Spanish Empire actually was. So the Spanish Empire or, or the Spanish, I guess, just used their networks in the different parts of the empire to be able to trade. And so they even had ports in Manila in the Philippines that became colonies of the Spanish empire as well. So their their empire just basically spanned the entire world. And so they used this. And in the 16th century, they established a trading group That would go periodically from Manila to some ports in the Americas, including Acapulco in present-day Mexico, Mm -hmm. Portobelo in Panama, and Callao in Peru. So ships were coming with goods from Asia to these ports, and then they were, technically, they were supposed to just cross over to the Atlantic and be shipped directly to Europe and to Spain, especially because they carried very luxurious goods from China that the Spanish emperor and the people around him, his court, they believed that Americans did not deserve these luxuries and they didn't have the right to these luxuries and so they should not consume that. But in real life, many of these things actually remained in the Americas. People consumed them in the Americas. Some of it was smuggled. I'm not sure that everything was actually smuggled. And not only did they stay in the Americas, but then also these goods that came from Asia and that came from Europe, because the route also went the other way around, they also inspired the production of different luxury goods, of course, including textiles in the Americas. So for example, we have evidence that calicos were produced in the Americas. There are some um, workshops that we know of in, I think in Mexico more specifically than in South America. And they produced what were called Indianillas in Spanish, but it's basically calicos or like chintz textiles. And of course they varied. They Quality is not the same, the motifs are not exactly the same, but they're inspired on these textiles that were being produced in Asia. We also have, for example, ceramics from Puebla that try to imitate this blue and white. Asian ceramic production. And they were, again, different, but inspired by this. And so globalization, and I think, went beyond just the goods coming from different places and America being a sort of huge market for those goods. But in a way, the Americas also became a sort of melting pot of cultures where all of these tastes, including indigenous American tastes, got together. And so that gave, I think, a lot of creativity for design and the arts in general, more than just fashion.
0: Yeah. And something I find super fascinating too, is that the exquisite, fringed, and embroidered manila silk shawl um, that I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with is synonymous with Hispanic dress, but it is in fact Chinese in origin, which is super interesting also because Manila is a city in the Philippines, um, but it's all connected. And I'd love if you could speak a little bit about how this accessory in particular is particularly emblematic of the transatlantic trade culture and its really seismic impact on dress practices around the globe. Mm
2: -hmm. Yeah, I think the the Manila shawl or manton de Manila, as we call it in Spanish, I think it Basically embodies all of this transatlantic and transpacific trade cultures of the early modern world because, as you say, it has just everything in it. It came to signify Spanish culture, and you know, flamenco dancers still use it as part of their performances and as part of their dance. Uh, but as you rightly mentioned, it's called mantón de Manila, which is in Philippines. But then it uses Chinese silk, and many times. Like figuratively speaking, it's designed with like orientalist flower motifs, but many times it has also scenes of quote unquote Asian people often sitting at what seem to be more like Japanese gardens with like pagodas and things like that. So it's really like multicultural all in just one object which i think is fascinating and then the other thing that they have that i've been thinking a lot about um but i don't i don't think i have a definitive answer for this is the um, macrame borders the sort of the fringe that it has because i think in a way macrame is also related to the Arabic heritage that was part of Spain for a very long time, especially southern Spain, which is probably what we think where most of the people that moved to the Americas came from. And so this sort of decorative knot tying has been traced to the first centuries of the common era in China, but then it was also a very important part of Arab textile production later on and especially in the 13th 14th centuries so I wonder if there's something to say about that like that's another culture that was very important for the Spanish empire that I think we can see reflected in other things just like tile work or azulejos and I wonder if that also made its way into the manton de Manila but I think in short, what I want to say here is that the Manila, like you say, I think just basically encapsulates all of this like, huge empire and, and huge trade networks in just one garment. And that's why it's so important and fascinating, I think.
0: And people might not know this, but the Moroccans actually occupied Spain up until basically right before or maybe it's the same year, I don't know off the top of my head, when Columbus sailed, you know, the ocean blue, have you. Um, the Moroccans were kicked out at that same era. So yeah, the influence is undeniably there. I visited Spain a couple years ago, and you can go to the south of Spain and see all of the wonderful architecture and learn more about that history too, but it's super interesting. And um, Do you know if those shawls were produced first in China or they, were they just made with Chinese silk within the Spanish Empire?
2: I actually don't know. And I think this is also where history gets really confusing because of course we have all of these myths and unfortunately the history of dress in, I would say the Spanish empire generally hasn't been very thoroughly studied. So we still have a lot of information that's not, I don't want to say that it's not accurate, but that we still need to like confirm and double check
0: April, I'm going to go ahead and second Laura on that observation. There is so much more research to be done on dress in the Spanish-American Empire, but scholars like Laura are actively working to change that with their research into understudied areas and understudied topics. And there's so many more fascinating things to uncover. Be sure and join us Thursday where we learn more about Laura's own research into the dress practices found in the 18th century Spanish-American colonial territory of New Granada.
1: In the meantime, head over to imperiodemoda.com, and that is spelled I-M-P-E-R-I-O-D-E-M-O-D-A, imperiodemoda.com, to learn more about Laura's fascinating work on fashion, consumption, and representation in Spanish colonial America. You can also find more of Laura's work on the Fashion and Race Database, where she is a researcher, as well as at culturasdemota.com, the digital humanities project she co-directs that is bringing fashion studies-related content to Spanish speakers. And she also has her own podcast, so be sure and check it out if you are a Spanish-speaking dress listener and spread the word. Well, that does it for us today, Dress
0: listeners. May you consider the sartorial legacy of Spanish colonial America next time you get dressed. Remember, we love hearing from you, so please email us at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, where you will find images accompanying each week's episode. And be sure and follow us along on Facebook at dress podcast without the underscore.
1: If you have a moment and would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we would appreciate your support. As always, a special thanks to our producers, Casey Pegram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. More Dressed coming your way on Thursday. Dress, The History of Fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.
0: Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around, a watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love.